You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of 1 Peter. We're calling Road Trip. With this week's message, here's Executive Pastor Derek Hughes. This morning we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, if you open it there, if not, you can open the Bible app that we have, or we have some Bibles in the back if you'd like to jump up and grab one of those right now. For those of you that know me, I'm kind of a sports junkie. I have uh, spent a lot of years of my life uh, following sports, playing sports, being involved, watching sports, um, and... Part of the reason I love sports is because it got me out of the house and kept me out of trouble. One of the reasons I love sports is because of a neighborhood friend that I played basketball with. Uh, I came to know Jesus Christ because of that family and their love for me. But I've also learned a few things playing a lot of sports from club teams and little league and college and high school and all of those things that... I really found that we've got two different types of coaches. At least I noticed this in in my years. There were coaches that taught us or prepared us not to lose. And then there were coaches that prepared us to succeed or to win. I had one of those that taught us to prepare and succeed to win in high school. One of my basketball coaches. And he taught us so much more than basketball. He taught us things of life. He encouraged us as we move forward. And so he was preparing us not just for basketball, but to succeed. And as a result of that, we saw a bigger picture. We went to the state semifinal or quarterfinals, was one second away from being in the state semifinals. And we see that in sports teams today. We see teams that will adopt a bigger picture, teams that will be encouraged to succeed. Two weeks ago, we saw that as the Atlanta Braves won the World Series, a team that at the all-star break had less than 1% chance to win the World Series. 15 teams had a better chance to win the World Series, and yet this team came together and won it all, world champions. And so part of it is the attitude that these teams develop, that that comes about as these individuals come together and as they see this bigger picture. And it's something that I hope for as my boys played sports. It's something that after I, I I witnessed it and I was a part of it that I wanted for each team that I was involved with. And so it's something that I think we should a church. I think we've been called to move forward for a bigger picture and to see God at work and come together for that. And so let me ask you a question. How are we doing? Are we working together individually as a team to to move to a bigger picture? Do we need instruction as how we might come together to prepare and to succeed? Well, this morning we're going to get that instruction from Peter. In 1 Peter 3, 8, he's going to give us nine virtues in verses 8 through 12. He's going to give us nine virtues 
that are going to help us in the culture that we're a part of because it feels like sometimes we're losing ground. It feels like sometimes we're falling behind each day. And so the previous three weeks, Peter has been walking through different scenarios. And now he's going to switch gears a little bit here and he's going to help us with the attitudes. He's going to help us with what we can do to succeed as a team and how we can come together. And so if you have your Bible open now, we're going to look at 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12 and read this together. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to the prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what is your first reaction as we read those verses? Mine is, God, you have a sense of humor. You're going to ask me to be up here and speak on attitudes. I struggle with this. This is something that these verses are difficult for me. Talking about being in the right attitude and as loving as Jesus loved. And one of the things I'm going to say quite a few times today that as Jesus is our example, as Jesus is our Savior, we're called to follow him. And so we're going to look at these virtues, and as we walk through these virtues, we're going to see how Jesus responded, how, Paul is, or how Peter is encouraging us, and then how we might live this out. If you were here last week, Lance kind of talked about this for us and, and how we live. And it's our orthodoxy. It's what we believe. It's that vertical part, the doctrine of who we are and how we see ourselves with God. And the other part is the orthopraxy. And that's how we live that out. And so today as we're dealing with the vertical and the horizontal, we're going to walk through just how this is with these attitudes for each of us. Because the evil that's out there, the evil that's lurking is the opportunities that we have to focus on ourselves and not focus on God or others. And so to illustrate this, I was kind of thinking, well, we're going to be talking about attitudes. My heart would say, I sure hope my wife and sons are listening today because they need to hear this. And so that's when I make it about me. And so the last few weeks, what we've been walking through and talking through with, with Peter is he's, he's looked at different scenarios for those of us that are within the church of how we respond and what we do. But over and over, we've been reminded that we're sojourners, that this is not our final destination. We are exiles. And so this means that we have to respond differently to a changing culture, to the culture around us. 
And so really what we need to think about is this changing cultures. There's ones outside of the church and there's ones inside the church. And if we only think about how to respond to the changing culture outside of the church, what's going to happen is we're going to forget those ones that are inside of the church. We'll end up where we're Let me go to my notes here because I want to say this correctly. The ones inside of the church, if we only think about how to respond to them, Christianity will not be credible. Who wants to believe in something that doesn't work in people's lives? Their homes, their marriages, their relationships. Reggie said something when we went over this on Wednesday I thought was very good from Howard Hendricks. And he said, don't try to export something that's not working in your own home. And that's true. But also, if we only think about those that are outside or those that aren't part of the church, we're going to create a cocoon if we're only looking inside. We're going to create this cocoon. We're isolating. And for that, Christianity will not be relevant. It won't be applicable. A world has lost its way. And so who wants to listen to the offer of a relationship with a loving God when it doesn't address the issues? And these issues are ones that people have not placed their faith in Christ and yet are facing daily. It appears that we then are out of touch. And so for us inside the church, it means that we have to be constantly concerned and we all constantly have to be responding to these two changing cultures. And so we know from this that whether we're single, whether we're a student, whether we're married, whether we're retired, we need people. We need those around us that are inside of the church, that are part of our family of faith, those that encourage us spiritually, those who come alongside of us, those who help us grow, those who will hold us accountable. But we also need friends that need to see the love that God has expressed to us lived out in our lives, that they might come to faith, that we might have relationship, that we might expand beyond the walls of just the church for these others. And so from 1 Peter 2, we realize we're exiles. We're sojourners. And so we have to continue to answer that question, how do we respond in this world? And so let's go back to 1 Peter 3, verse 8. He starts off and he says to us, finally. Finally. Peter is bringing together here what we've covered the last few weeks. He's bringing together how we respond to the government, how we respond to employers, how we respond in our family life with husbands and wives. And he says, so finally, with this in mind, and he's going to give us these nine virtues, Because as we move forward, this is a bridge or a link to the next chapter where he's going to help us as we're walking through what it's like to face opposition, to be treated unfairly. And so our attitudes are important as we move forward in that. But the next thing Peter says is, finally, and then he says, all of you. He's talking to everyone within the church body. He's talking to all of those who are of the faith. He's talking to us at Grace Church where he says, all of you. Maybe the last few weeks you felt left out. There's been husband-wife relationships. 
as there's been those who are working in the governmental and how we make that work. Maybe you felt a little left out with how employers, employees, and that's not part of who you are. Well, today Peter says, all of you, all of you, everyone within the church, pay attention and listen. Because these attitudes, they, refl- they, they have an impact. They reflect or reshape our relationships. And so if we're going to think about success as a team and how this is achieved in the church, there's five in verse 8 that we need to understand. And the first one is, he says, have unity of mind. In the original language, this unity of mind is put together in one word. It's a harmonious it literally means we're like-minded, but it, it's we've come together. And so he says, when we come together, we need to have this one mind. But what do we know? What is it that we understand? We understand that there is division. We understand that sometimes there's us versus them. There's people who don't think like us. There's people who don't act like us. We have different backgrounds. We have different personalities. And our present culture has made this even worse because there are those that say, if you're not being heard, you need to speak louder and you need to do more and you need to make it right. Well, I've been in church ministry for over 25 years and really I have seen a lot of things. I have seen some weird and strange things. But one thing I can tell you is that I really have seen very few people that ever set out to be blatantly divisive. Instead, what I've observed is a lot of people, they, they end up unsure about what's next. They're a little fearful. They're, they get frustrated. Emotions pour over. And that can get the best of us. That can get the best of them. And so we forget the bigger picture. And so sometimes when that happens, words come out. An email or a phone call is made. A text is sent. And so we, we get lost in that track of the unity. But no one's really in those instances, they're thinking, well, I'm getting up this morning so I can be divisive and I want to just be blatantly against whatever it is that someone else believes. That's not the heart. And so I've learned that in church ministry. And we can follow the pattern of the world. I love what Chuck Swindoll says. He was a pastor, author, uh, and he was president of Dallas Seminary for years. And he says this, these verses and the unity of mind, it implies that oneness of heart, similarity of purpose, and agreement on major points of doctrine Unity isn't uniformity where everyone looks and acts the same, nor is it the same as unanimity when everybody agrees 100% on everything. Peter isn't calling us to sing together in unison, but in harmony, which means we all contribute our unique notes in beautiful chorus that far surpasses any single note. And so we don't sacrifice truth on the altar of harmony, but we do sacrifice sometimes our personal feelings. And so Peter starts these virtues. And you might ask, well, man, Derek, you've just overwhelmed me with just this unity of mind. 
how do I do this well? Well, there's eight other virtues that we're going to walk through that will enhance this, that will move this forward to help us to understand. And so not only is Peter doing this here to help us as we move forward and as we follow Christ and what his example is, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15, he says a prayer and he prays for us because he prays in Romans 15, he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement, because that's what we need, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus who we follow, that together you may with one voice come together with that one voice, that harmony that that Dr. Swindoll was talking about, and glorify God, the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so unity is key. Then Peter says, not only do we need unity, we need sympathy. And sympathy simply shares kind of a meaning, it's a concern that we have for others. It's coming alongside of them and Coming as a church family, as God had intended us to look out for one another, to walk with one another through the needs that people have, that we have together as a church family, we're called to be, we're called to have care and concern for others. We know from Hebrews chapter four that our God, the one that we follow, our Lord, sympathizes with us within our weaknesses, and we have been called to do that also. Have you ever wondered why we as a church, we pray for people individually by name in here on a Sunday morning? It's not just because they need prayer, because they do, but we pray by name because it also brings for us, it's, we're reminded about the grief of loss. We're reminded about the, the joy of birth. We're reminded about the things that people are facing in their life. And so as a church family, we pray together for that. We pray for people who are part of our church and who are walking through maybe difficult circumstances in their lives. My wife Tammy and I have felt that the last few years. Four years ago, many of you know that we experienced grief upon grief upon grief upon grief, and then six months later, upon grief. Because we lost all four of our parents in a one-year period. And then six months later, we lost our beloved pastor, Tom Rogers. And so many of you expressed for us as we were walking that path, sympathy. And I'll jump ahead and say brotherly love and tenderheartedness toward us as we were walking down that path, and it was very difficult. And so when our church family came together, at least for us, That was incredible to to feel that sympathy that others were feeling what we were feeling and that they were loving us in such a way and all that. And that's the church. That's how we should operate. And so as we move forward, we also just know that we can be comforting one another. And for Tammy and I, we're very grateful for you. And so not only do we need to have this unity of mind and this sympathy We need brotherly love. Peter emphasizes this family love that believers are to have for one another. This word is used four times in Peter's epistle here. It's used in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 here, and it'll be used again in chapter 4, verse 8. Peter wants us to understand that as exiles, 
our relationship with Christ and as he has moved in our lives is based on love. His love was shown for us when he gave his life. He ushered us into a new family. He gave us a new identity. And we're to love in such a way that fits with how we have been loved. He is our example. A common love for Christ creates a love for one another that truly does love others. And you were to say, well, how does that, what does that look like? How does that fit? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a whole definition of how to walk through that. Jesus said in John 13, this new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you love one another. But he says, by this, all people will know, those who aren't here and part of our church family, that they will know who Christ is by the way we love one another. A pastor friend of mine in Indianapolis, he summarized these, this verse here, this brotherly love, and in a message to his church, he said, brotherly love is the normal way that a church is to function and live. Do we realize that a very important reason why we're here today is to live out brotherly love? The normal and healthy way for a church to function is through brotherly love. And if that isn't happening, then something is wrong. If that isn't a part of how you see the church, then your understanding of the church is not in line with, a biblical, with the biblical vision. In other words, you should be giving and receiving brotherly love in the church all the time. And I think he says that point very well. And so not only a unity of mind and a sympathy and a brotherly love, but the next one in verse 8 says we need to have a tender heart. This word in its original is based on it's seated in our internal organs. Sometimes it's been translated to the bowels or intestines. This is something that's a part of who we are. It's a heartfelt compassion that empathizes and it sympathizes for those that are walking through difficult situations, especially those that are hurting. Have you ever heard about something happening within our church family or someone who's walking a difficult situation and you got a little lightheaded or felt a little nauseous in the stomach because of hearing about what it is that they are walking through? And so this tender heart, it, it feels that internally. And we've been called to feel that for others. I, I don't know about you, but I felt this a few times just over the last few months as I've heard about some of the things that some of you have been walking. And so when we have a tender heart, it's loving one another within our church family. The idea then is that we see each other differently and people who are hurting and people who need someone to come alongside of them. Paul says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so not only is it a unity of mind, not only is it a sympathy and a brotherly love and a tender heart, but Peter wraps this verse up and he says, have a humble mind. This last virtue, this one is really elusive. It can appear to be easy, but Peter's talking about this is something that's not just what we show on the outside, but something of who we are, and it's how we're seen. We can come in and, and we can be humble. 
One commentator says humility is arguably the most essential, all-encompassing virtue of the Christian life. But this humility that that Peter is talking about here, it's, it's not just feigning. It's not just when we come in here. It's how we live our lives. And so it's the fact that, that God loves us. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourself. And so humility means we have a right understanding with God. We, we realize who we are in light of who he is. It's in light of the gospel. It's a light that we need to be reminded of what he has done for us. We just sang about that. The God who's captured us by his grace. And so for those of us, we should see ourselves differently who have come to faith. And humility is only truly possible when we know the reality of the gospel. And the gospel is that God loves us and that God wants and desires a relationship with us and that Jesus Christ came and he lived a life, a life that you and I could not live because he lived a life without sin. And he gave that life for us to pay for our sin, to to be able that we might have life with God eternally. He paid that price on the cross. And he was buried, but not only did he stay buried, but he rose again. And he conquered sin and he conquered death that we might have relationship with him. And so that's the gospel, that's the offer that we have of eternal life. And so if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I'd encourage you right now where you're seated to just acknowledge that you need God and that you accept by faith what Christ has done for you in paying the penalty for our sin. You can do that right now where you're seated. But for some of us that have been Christians, we've been looked at by those that are on the outside. And sometimes people have said, man, they're judgmental. They don't have much humility. And so maybe if you're sitting in here and that's you right now, I'm sorry. Because that's not what God has called us and how we live and how we treat others. Especially if we're looking at for these five virtues that we just talked about. And so we have nothing. For those of us who have trusted Christ, we have nothing to boast about. Because everything we have is a gift from God. And so when we come to believe that Christ is the way and the truth in the life, our lives change. It changes everything. And so... This verse and these five virtues remind me that I need some attitude work in my life. My, my oldest son, Connor, when he was young, he would sometimes uh, make some decisions or he would do some things that we'd then tell him, uh, Connor, if you choose to do that, there's going to be a consequence. And sometimes then he'd look at us and he'd, lift his little finger and he'd say, I have a bad attitude. And you know what? We'd say, well, it's time for you to change that attitude. Bad attitude. And sometimes he did. And sometimes he didn't. And there was a consequence for that for him. But you know, I feel like that sometimes. 
when God brings somebody across my path or when there's something that's not going my way, and I know of how I should be responding, especially in light of these verses, and then the next four we're going to look at, I sometimes lift my finger and go, I got a bad attitude. And it doesn't necessarily mean I, when I realize and acknowledge it, then I'm going to change it. And so that's the challenge that we have for us. And so next, Peter's going to change gears a little bit in verses 9 through 12. Still these virtues that we need to live out, but he says in verse 9, he says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And so we know from chapter 2 of 1 Peter that when Jesus was facing unjust treatment, when there were things in his life that he was walking through, we know that he entrusted himself to the Father. And he responded that way because he knew that God would judge justly. And so we have to entrust ourselves to the Father. Jesus called us as our example again. Jesus called us not to retaliate. He says in Matthew 5 that what are we supposed to do? We turn the other cheek. If someone asks us to go one mile, we go two well, that, that doesn't seem right, especially if someone's not treating me right. Peter says our calling is not to repay evil for evil or reviling, but on the contrary, bless. But I say, why should they get away with something? Why should they get away with this unfair treatment or this wrong thing that they're doing, especially if it's directed toward me? But literally, Peter is saying here, don't give back what's being treated, the way you're being treated. He says, the contrary, we are to bless. And that's, that's our calling. This, this, this may be done in word. It may be done in action. It might include all or one of these nine virtues for us. But here, the repeated word again, it's evil, used five times in these five verses. And this means an inherent quality of badness, it means something that we shouldn't respond to in the like manner. And this is hard. This is hard. I wonder, though, as Peter's pinning these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if all of a sudden he stops and he reflects upon his own life, because he asked Jesus a question. He said, Lord, when I'm being mistreated or when someone's not doing right to me, how many times should I forgive them? And Jesus just right between the eyes, seven? No, up to 70 times seven. And I wonder if Peter there is thinking, okay, wait a minute. Evil for evil, no. Revile for revile, no. Bless. Because he word, heard those words audibly from our Savior, and they're recorded for us. And so we're supposed to bless, and that's difficult. But for us that have accepted Christ as Savior and trusted him, he's going to work this out for us. But we read something here that we're the recipient of something. When we're blessed in doing what we're called, what does the end of verse 9 say? We obtain a blessing. And so by following our calling of what God has asked for us to do in this, we receive blessing from God. And so part of that blessing is eternal. 
We will spend forever in his presence for those who have trusted Christ as Savior. But there's an aspect here on this earth as as sojourners, as exile, where we receive a blessing also. For when we follow through on this virtue, our attitudes change, our actions change. We're being transformed more into the image of his son. And that's a blessing for us as we move and go about our days. But there also is another blessing, and this one is really difficult for me. When I think about the fact of how someone has treated me and if they're being evil, God may use the way that I treat an individual after they have done this and I don't return evil for evil and I don't revile with revile. They may stop and say, whoa, wait a minute. I am so used to going toe-to-toe with you or toe-to-toe with others and you blessed me? You said something kind about me. You sympathized with me. You tried to find out how to have unity. You then heard what was behind my eyes and you had a tender heart. Tell me why. And we might at that point give a, have an opportunity, a God-orchestrated opportunity to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And that person that was evil and vile acting toward us would come to faith in Christ. How awesome would that be? That God would use us for ministry by blessing others. And that some would come to faith in him. One of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Tom, Dr. Tom Constable, said this. The blessing for insult response, however, is one in which we react kindly when we suffer ill treatment. It springs from an attitude of forgiveness. It has its focus on God's word and the promises of his word. Instead of reacting in anger, we respond with forgiveness. The consequences of taking this approach in interpersonal relationships are getting a blessing, having a full life, and walking with God. And so now we turn our attention from this as we we see and we understand this. Verse 10, Peter starts off and he says the word for. And so what he's doing here is he's linking verses 8 and 9, and he's linking verses 10 through 12. And he says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days. Well, verses 10 through 12, if you were here this summer, we walk through the life of David. And these verses were drawn from Psalm 34, where David, in his valleys, the highs and lows of David's life, in one of those areas where David was struggling quite a bit, David ran, feigned madness before King Abimelech, and then he ends up pinning some words. He pins some words to encourage us, but he also pins some words in Psalm 34 to help us understand how we can, in light of difficult situations, how we can have a right response and we can thank God. In that Psalm, David thanks God he suffered. And so we too can praise the Lord in these situations. But what he says here, and this, which has been taken from Psalm 34, says, whoever desires to love life and see good days... Shouldn't that be our every morning? That when we wake up, we say, thank you, Lord, I've been given another day. 
how might I use this day? How might I go out and be a blessing to those? How might these, these things that you would like for me, how might I exhibit those to others today? And so what we need to do is we look at verse 10 and, and how what God has called us as sojourners is we're just passing through this life. And so it's that remembrance from the first that it's not about me. And so how do I keep my attitude in check? What does it mean to desire and love life and see good days? John 10.10, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so that is there and that's that's for us as believers in Christ. But Peter gives us three things out of these verses then. He says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And so this virtue here, if we want to love life and we want to see good days, and as it's connecting verses 11 and 12 here with these virtues, with 8 and 9 and 10 and how we're walking through this, first thing we need to understand is that first thing we see is we need to keep our speech above reproach. This is a tough challenge. We know from Matthew 12 that the religious leaders in Jesus' day They were struggling also. And Jesus calls them out. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? And then what really pierces me to the joint and marrow, for out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of an evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Have you ever had a bad day because of your mouth? Have you ever exaggerated something and then got asked a question a little bit later and you couldn't remember what you said the last time you said something about that topic or issue? Have you ever had someone who has treated you in a certain way and you either angrily say something back or you respond in a way that's not one of these virtues or you go in a passive-aggressive way to work that out? Or worse yet, have you ever been up some of the night or most of the night because you said something and you can't take it back. You can't undo, you can't push pause, you can't push reset. I have. And those are not the good life. Those aren't experiencing the abundant life that we have been called. And so fortunately... We can also remember other truths of God's word, and that's what, after that night when you've walked and worked through that, and maybe you slept a little bit and maybe you didn't, you can remember that his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And so we can can start over. We can make it right. I read a tweet recently, and I think this is a good antidote for those who have had those types of nights. The tweet said, on mornings when I tweet before I read scripture, I'm assuming the world needs my voice more than I need God's. Not only did that challenge me, but I'll even take it a little further in my own life. Sometimes I think that I need to see or 
find out what's going on in the world or in the social media world before I spend time and engage myself with the creator of the universe and see what he might have for me. And so it's important for us as we're called to control the mouth and control the tongue. Verse 11, it says, do good and live a life of of purity. The imperative here is to turn away from evil and do good. I'm not really a big fan of this as God's word has said it because there's only two options here. I would like to find somewhere in the middle where I'm not necessarily doing evil, but I've just kind of found this comfortable place because doing good in this imperative involves that I am on a constant mission. I am constantly aware of that. And so this evil is, it's a lack of goodness. And so that's why there's only two options because I'm either on the doing good path or I'm not. And so it's not only doing good, but it's wicked, it's vicious, it's bad and hard, it's conduct and character. And so the good, though, then, is the positive traits. It's the characters, it's the virtue. The New Testament refers to this as spiritual discipline and moral excellence. And so it's spiritual discipline and moral excellence. We know from Galatians 6, we're called to let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap. We will receive benefits if we don't give up. We will be blessed. So then as we have the opportunity, let us be good to everyone. And Paul says, especially to those who are of the household of faith, to those that are part of our family. And so the last part of this says to seek peace and pursue it. This one is especially tough in our world right now. It's living a peaceful disposition. And this isn't automatic. The command calls for us as sojourners to pursue it. And so whether it's personal preferences or personalities, sometimes we like to argue, we like to dig in. We like to dig our feet in and engage in conflict. I'm not talking about biblical doctrine that we hold to, but we're not called to be passive. We're called to seek peace. And then the pursuit is what we need to do, and we're called to do that. And so to seek is continual. It's pursuing, and it's pressing hard after. It's to work for reconciliation and harmony among people. But the greatest comfort then we have in this is verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and its ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so our goal of our life is to live a life that's pleasing to God. We have a loving God that sees all, knows all, and holds people accountable for their behavior. And so Peter's primary issue here is not judgment, but it's blessing. It's blessing and God's gracious care for his people. We read that God is looking toward the ones that are what? that are on the lives of the Lord are on the righteous, those that are fulfilling these nine virtues, these are, those that are pursuing these virtues. And so the practice of righteousness is not makes it what makes us righteous, but it reveals. It reveals the inner, inner character of the one that is seeking and pursuing peace. 
It's comforting to know that God is the defender of the people. He knows, he protects them, he preserves them, he blesses them. We don't have to defend him, he's defending us. We can leave things in his hands. There's no way we can do this on our own. From John 15, we know that we have the ability, we we can't do these. We can only do it when we abide in Christ. And we have that ability when we allow his word to fill our minds, when he directs our wills, and when he transforms our affections. But practically speaking, I, I, I came across this. How is it then that these nine virtues, how are they seen? What's a practical way that we can live this out? And I read this blog post. The author says, sometimes I just want it to stop. The talk of COVID, the protests, the looting, the brutality. I lose my way. I become convinced that this new normal is real life. Then I met an 87-year-old who talks of living through polio, diphtheria, Vietnam protests, and yet is still enchanted with life. He seemed surprised when I said that 2020 must be especially challenging for him. No, he said slowly, looking me straight in the eyes, I learned a long time ago not to see the world through the printed headlines. I see the world through the people that surround me. I see the world with realization we love big. Therefore, I just choose to write my own headlines. Husband loves wife today. Family drops everything to come to grandma's bedside. He patted my hand. Old man makes new friend. His words collide with my worries, freeing them from the tether I've been holding tight. They float away. I am left with a renewed spirit. My headline now reads, Woman Overwhelmed by the Spirit of Kindness and the reminder that our capacity to love is never-ending. If, if we were to write your headline today, what would it say? Would we see what's important? Would we keep the right attitude? And in your bulletin or on the app, under each of these virtues, there are some verses. I've referred to some of them. But maybe if God has been working or talking to you through this as the Holy Spirit has been moving in your life, there might be one or many that you might want to do. look at those verses this week and maybe do a little study on those. Maybe you might want to memorize them when relationships seem to crumble because God is at work in us and he desires to use us and bless us so that we may glorify him. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.